Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, just a few moments ago, we read our text from Luke 16. And as we read our text, I wonder if there was anyone here or anyone at home who, while reading our text, uh, reached up and scratched their head. By saying that, I don't mean that some of you have itchy heads, but I mean that some of you, after reading this text, might be left wondering, what is the Lord Jesus teaching us here with this parable? It sounds like, after you read it, that he's encouraging us to follow the example of a dishonest man in his dealings. Why does the Lord Jesus teach his parable like this? Or, if it's not that, it might be, is the Lord Jesus saying, in some way, that we can buy our way into heaven? Maybe you had that thought in your mind. Well, it is true that at first glance, this text does strike you as a bit of a a head-scratcher. But beloved, that can be a good thing. When you're left wondering what a text means, it often causes uh, you to, to dig deeper. Dig deeper into the text, dig deeper into Scripture. It spurs us on to search the Bible for understanding, and that is always a good thing. The Holy Spirit uses that searching and study to give us insight and to strengthen our faith. And that's, I think that's certainly true of this text this morning. Now, right at the get-go, I can assure you of some things that Christ is not teaching us. He is not teaching us to act dishonestly. He is also not suggesting we can buy our way into heaven. However, He is teaching us to develop a certain perspective on time and possessions, on eternity and money. How we use the things entrusted to us by God, they testify about our faith. When we use those things in faithful ways here on earth, it will testify to the reality of a true and living faith. So as I preach you God's Word this morning, I'll do so under the following theme and points. I use earthly wealth in such a way that you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. We'll look first of all at the parable. We're going to go through this parable uh, step by step, and then we're going to look at the application. So again, as I said before, this parable in Luke 16, it's part of a larger passage that begins uh, already in Luke 15. The tax collectors and sinners, they were drawing near to Jesus. Jesus welcomed them. In response, the Pharisees inscribed, they grumbled against Christ. Because of this, Christ told three parables. Parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And those parables all made a similar point. It's important to seek out the lost and rejoice when they are found. And then right after the parable of the prodigal son, the Lord Jesus tells the parable of the shrewd manager in our text. Now, this parable was spoken specifically to Christ's broad group of disciples. The Pharisees, they were still listening, and there will be a message to them also. So, Christ gets into the parable. 
He describes a rich man and his manager. The rich man was some kind of business owner. It's clear from the huge quantities of oil and wheat owed to him that he had great wealth. And the manager or steward, uh, this was a common position in the ancient world. The rich man entrusted much of his business dealings to this manager to take care of his estate, his business. And the manager, he had great freedom in how he conducted business on behalf of the master, his boss. However, at all times, he was answerable to the rich man for the things he did. And at some point, charges against this manager were brought to the master's attention. The manager was guilty of wasting or mismanaging his master's property. With that, the master decided it was time to fire his manager and get a new one. And this left the manager in a quite the, you know, the troubled position. Having become known as a dishonest manager through his actions, his prospects of getting another similar position were pretty much zero. That left two options, a beg for money or do hard physical labor, and neither options appealed to him at all. And so looking ahead to the future, his prospects looked bleak, and so he knew he needed a plan. He needed to prepare for the future, his future reality. So after some quick thinking, he came up with a very shrewd plan. His boss had given, given him a little bit of time to finish up his last bit of managing. So the manager said, I've decided what I will do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And that's sort of a key thing that Christ wants to point out in this parable. This manager was looking ahead so that when his time is up, he will have friends who receive him. So what does the manager do? He quickly summons some of his master's debtors. He tells the first one, take your bill of 100 measures of olive oil and make it 50. He tells the second, take your bill of 100 measures of wheat and make it 80. And, and we should understand, this was a huge reduction in debt. Take only the oil debt. Uh, it was reduced by nearly 500 gallons of olive oil. It's a lot of olive oil. Uh, both reductions saved the debtors huge amounts of money and a lot of work. Now, why was this plan so clever and so effective, even though it was dishonest? Well, first of all, these debtors would surely help this man out once he lost his job. And that's especially true of this culture. If you did someone a favor like this, especially in this culture, that person knew he was obligated to help you out in return. Another reason this was a shrewd move was that it actually made... Uh, his master, the rich man, it made him look good. 
Because the manager acts on behalf of the master, there's nothing the rich man can do to change the debts back to the way they were. If he did, he would take a huge hit to his reputation. He would lose future business. But even though he takes a financial hit, on the bright side, at least his reputation will go up. He will look good. Look at the reduction in debts. And so this means extra security for the manager. The debt reduction cannot be undone. Uh, His plan should help him for the long term now. There's one more reason the manager's plan was clever. It was shrewd. Now, what would happen if the manager, instead of reducing the debts, just stole some stuff from his master? Well, the master could hunt him down and have him killed. Having reduced these debts, there's now a third party involved. The master's debtors. And the master can't do that anymore to his manager. He can't hunt him down, have him killed. Uh, Without suffering himself, there's these third parties involved. And so we read in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. In fact, we could translate it that that the master appraised the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And we might wonder, why would he do that? Uh, His manager just cost him a huge pile of money, and that after already proving uh, unreliable. You would think he would explode with rage. Well, this crook just swindled me. But realize the master is not commending the manager for the swindle itself, or that he's been cheated out of money. Rather, the master can't help but see how cleverly his fired manager has acted. He knows that his fired manager has secured his own future, and his master can't even do anything about the reduced debts. His hands are tied. And so it's almost as if the master says to himself, well played, sir. Even though you cheated me out of my money, I can't help but shake my head and how clever you are. And this is why I hired you in the first place, because you showed some savvy business skills. Too bad you didn't use it in a good way. At this point, the Lord Jesus, he moves from telling the story giving instruction. Transition begins in verse 8. He says, A master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then Jesus adds, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And then he says in verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And then in verses 10 to 12, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have been, not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is yours? And finally, he finishes off his instruction by saying, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one 
or just and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So those are the instructions that follow after uh, the telling of the parable, and they they raise some questions. First of all, are all these statements and instructions after the telling of the parable? Are they related somehow, or are they completely distinct? Do they fit together? Are there three or four separate applications to the parable, or is there essentially one? What about some of the things Jesus says here? They seem somewhat contradictory. When Christ tells us to use unrighteous wealth in order to gain friends for ourselves— It seems like he's telling us to act like this dishonest, this shrewd manager. But when Christ tells us, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is yours? It seems like he's telling us the opposite. To not act like the shrewd manager. After all, the manager was not faithful with that which belonged to someone else. So what's going on? What are we supposed to take away from the parable? How do we apply it to our lives as Christians? That brings us to our second point. Now, to get at the heart of Jesus' teaching here, we must understand one important concept uh, first off. We need to understand that we, too, are managers or stewards. We have the, the, the same position that this manager in the parable did. We are stewards of God. God has entrusted to us things that belong to Him. We are to manage them on His behalf. And so what does that mean? That means that none of what you have ultimately belongs to you. What you have ultimately belongs to God. It's been given to you for a time to manage it, take care of it. It's so easy to forget this. What's so often our default thinking Uh, My money belongs to me. My stuff belongs to me. And yes, it's true that no one else can claim for himself what God has entrusted to you. In that sense, it's your property. It belongs to you. But ultimately, just like this manager in the parable, you have been given things in trust. You've been given things to work with for someone else. And yes, you have been given lots of freedom in how you manage the things entrusted to you, just like this manager had, he had lots of freedom in how he managed his master's property. But we are still managing them on behalf of God and are called to use them in a way that is pleasing to him. And this helps us with the first simple application of the parable. God requires me, he requires you 
to use the things he's entrusted to your, to your care in a faithful way, with faithfulness. As Jesus says after the parable, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is yours? So, the shrewd manager was not faithful with the things entrusted to him. He was guilty of squandering or wasting his master's possessions. He could not be entrusted with true riches. And so in that way, we are not to be as the shrewd manager. <clears throat> now, what way can we be unfaithful with the things entrusted to our care? Well, the Lord Jesus answers that in his very next statement in our text where he says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, God has not entrusted things like money into our care so that we might serve money. That would be to use it unfaithfully. Rather, he's entrusted things like money into our care so that we might serve God with it. You cannot serve two masters, says the Lord. I like how Reform commentator William Hendrickson put it so well when he said, the psychological tension that is built up in the soul of a person who imagines for a while that he will be able to love and serve both masters becomes so severe and unendurable that in attitude, word, and deed, he will sooner or later begin to show where his real allegiance lies. Either the one master or the other will win out and actually has been on top the whole time. Though perhaps the individual in question was not fully aware of this. But in the crisis, the agitated soul, out of love for the one master, will begin to show that he hates the other, perhaps even to the point of being willing to betray him. Think of Judas Iscariot. Was it not mammon or money that led him to deliver Christ into the hands of the enemy? That is true. Think also of this unfaithful, shrewd manager in the parable. He was guilty of squandering his master's possessions. And so he was not really serving his master at all. Rather, he was serving something else, someone else. Perhaps only himself in the end. Think also of the parable of the rich fool in our reading from Luke 12. This man had gained a great crop. He had been entrusted with much, but he was not serving God with what he had been given. In his greed, he kept everything for himself. He was not rich towards God. 
And so at the end of the day, he was not serving the Lord as a faithful steward, uh, manager. He was only serving himself. He was serving money. He was serving possessions. And in that way, he was guilty of squandering and mismanaging uh, his master's possessions, God's possessions. And this is the sort of the thing that Pharisees were guilty of. Verse 14 says that Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things and they ridiculed him. They sneered at the Lord's teaching. But Jesus is essentially telling them that by their greed, by their love of money, you know, by their greed, by their love of money, they aren't serving God, the one who entrusted his things into their hands. They are guilty of misusing, squandering their master's possessions. Because of this, it's important to know that this parable, again, it's connected to Luke 15 and the parables taught there. You know, the chapter division in our Bible is not helpful here. You should almost ignore that little number uh, 16 in your Bible. It's one passage. In the previous chapter, Christ told the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son was guilty of squandering, wasting his father's inheritance. And that sort of squandering was obvious. It was obvious to the Pharisees, and they despised that sort of squandering. It was so wasteful in their eyes. It was obviously sinful. That's also why they looked down on the tax collectors and sinners with whom Jesus ate. Those people fit the mold of the prodigal son. However, what Jesus is pointing out in our text is that they too are guilty of squandering or mismanaging what they have been given. But they are doing it in a different way. They are doing it by their love of money. They are being unfaithful to God by their greed. Maybe a different sort of squandering and unfaithfulness to the tax collectors and sinners. But still, they were no better than those people they looked down on. So the Pharisees, they were unfaithful managers. That's most likely why they sneered when they heard Jesus teaching. They didn't like to hear that. So in order to be a faithful manager of the things God, gave, God gives us, Christ is calling us away from greed and serving money. Instead, we use those things to serve God in the way that is pleasing to Him. And how does God want us to use things like money that has been entrusted to us? Well, to see that, we can see the, the other side, the other part of the application of this parable. In many ways, we are not to be like the manager in this parable. He was dishonest. He cheated his master. However, there's one way he is to be commended. He acted shrewdly. He saw that his time as manager was not permanent. It would soon be over. And he knew he had to prepare for what was ahead, for what was coming. He used his position as manager to gain friends for himself to secure 
his future. Why does the Lord Jesus tell this parable in this way? To teach us that we can buy our way into heaven? No, not in the least. But he wants to wake us up to our short-sightedness when it comes to things like money. When it comes to money and possessions, we often take a, on a this-world-only focus. And when we use things and trust to us like money, often we aren't thinking about the future, our eternal future. We're often only thinking about this life. Christ says that's a mistake. The manager in the parable is commended, not because he's dishonest, but because he took a long, sober look at the future. He knew his management would come to an end. And so he used what has been entrusted to him now so that he would be welcomed into people's houses when his time was up. He prepared for the future. So Christ says to us, the sons of this world or this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Beloved, we are children of light. We've been transferred into the kingdom of light blood of Jesus Christ has paid for our sins. The resurrection of Christ has secured for us an eternal inheritance on the new heavens and the new earth. And by faith in Christ, we are now citizens of God's kingdom. You know, you have been enlightened to that wonderful reality. It is yours. That's why you are sons of the light. And we are also children of light because we have been enlightened about what is coming in the future, the eternal future. We know that eternity is on the horizon. It's coming our way. We need to ask, are we living as children of the light? Does that knowledge change our perspective on how we live? Do our actions and how we use things like money show that we have eternity in mind. We're preparing for that future. Christ teaches us how to do this in verse 9. It's how you make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, what, what do those words mean? I think it's helpful to go back to Luke 12. Jesus told the parable of the rich fool who used all his riches only for himself. He was not using unrighteous wealth to gain friends for himself in the way Jesus is teaching here. He was all on his own. He wanted it that way, just him and his money. Well, Jesus teaches us the right way later on in Luke 12. He says, Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. God calls us as his managers to serve him with our money, with our possessions. And so often, his will is we care for the poor, for the needy. He calls us to use the things he has entrusted to us for the building up 
of his kingdom. And when we do that, we are showing the fruits of our faith, the reality of our faith. And those who have benefited from our giving, they rejoice in our generosity and testify to the deeds we have done in faith. A great example of that is found in 2 Corinthians 9. Uh, The Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthian church, he's encouraging them to give generously. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your sowed for seeing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. People will thank God because of your generosity. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. See, with Jesus' instruction, he's not teaching us that we have bought people's friendship. We're not buying our way into heaven. It means that those who benefit from our giving rejoice at our giving, and they testify to our changed life and the reality of of our faith. Amen. Let us now respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing together hymn 74.